Wow, what a blessing to be able to be gathered together and worship the Lord. Thank you, Alex, for that great children's focus there. Um, what a blessing. I, I feel very blessed to be here this morning and have this opportunity to minister the word to you. I'm also very blessed and thankful to have three friends sitting back there beside my wife and daughter that um, uh, it's Frank and Nyla and, and Joy Weaver. Uh, Joy's husband couldn't be with us today. Uh, he had other, uh, other things going on for him. But um, these three are members in the church that I retired from pastoring 16 years ago and they're still our friends and Joy and Nyla have ministered to Linda, my wife, uh, over the years and they're that dedicated that we live here now almost three years. This is their third time they've come up to spend a weekend with, with uh, my wife and, and, well, and all of us, but but especially connecting with my wife. And for some reason, they decided to stay an extra night and come worship with us today. So I, I am thankful and I'm blessed for friends like that uh, as well. So, But this morning, we have an interesting passage to take a look at. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, I mean chapter 9, verse 18 to 29 we'll be taking a look at this morning. And I've called this, this uh, sermon this morning The Second Garden, and you'll hear a little bit about that uh, in, in what's coming up here in a, in a little bit. So Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. You can follow as I read it from the ESV, the Word of God. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son and, and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. When I said yes to preaching this morning, I didn't know what the text was going to be because Tim wasn't far enough along to say, yeah, here's your text. But I said, okay, uh, to do it. Later, when Pastor Tim emailed me the text that he was assigning me for this morning, I thought, Oh my, 
Because when I read through Genesis, I, I kind of come to this part and, and I read it and I say, what was wrong with Noah? And I skim through the next chapter, which is genealogy, and I get to the Tower of Bevel, which is a lot more interesting and fascinating to read and think about. And I, I don't pay much attention to this. In fact, I was thinking about this, I think in about the 1,400 or sermons or so that I preached while I was a pastor, I never preached on this text. So this is the first time in all my preaching experience that I've ever preached on this text. But the interesting thing was, the more that I read and reread this passage and saying, God, what are you telling us? The more that I studied the more fascinated that I became by this text. Because God put it, not much details, but he put it there for a reason. For Israel and for us today. So let's take a look at some of the things I found, or thought about, I should say, uh, as I was studying this. The first one that we want to think about is Noah's new beginning. Now, when we begin this text, it's a confirmation, once again, reiterating who came off the ark. Because we're establishing something here, God's establishing something, that these people came, survived and came off that ark. And, and so it's, again, a confirmation that, yep, Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives came off of that ark. And verse 19 points out that from these three sons and their wives, the whole earth was repopulated. And right away, just like it probably is for you, for me, it brought up some questions about DNA and genetics. And just like that question Pastor Tim talked about way back at the beginning, uh, when, when sin entered, and the question, where did Cain get his wife? And where did all these people get their wives that came? So, yeah, it had to be cousins or even sisters. Um, but no question, God was taking care of the DNA and the genetics that were involved just as he did the first time around through this because God promised that from Noah the whole earth would be replenished just as he had said to Adam and Eve as well. So it's a confirmation of who came off the ark. And the other thing that I began to think about was, wow, as they stepped off that ark into a totally brand new world. I mean, it's really hard to imagine from what they had to what they had now. <laughs> Nothing except they and the animals that came off the ark and what they saw growing because... Remember, Noah sent the dove out of the ark window and it came back with a olive branch in its beak. So there was growth happening. So what they saw when they stepped off that ark is, at this point, up to our imaginations. But there was something growing uh, already at that point. It was a brand new world, a brand new beginning for them. Now, it says here in the text that Noah began... And that word fascinated me, began to be 
uh, a man of the soil. Well, I wonder how he ate what he ate before the flood. And I pondered that a bit, and I said, you know what? Noah spent a long time building that boat, and it survived all that time in all, those, in all that water. He did a pretty good job at building that because he must have been a pretty good craftsman. I wonder if he was a craftsman of some sort before God called him to build that ark to save uh, his family and the animals as well. But anyway, it says that he began to be a man of the soil. He had to, to survive. Because they couldn't, even though God had said, as it, we read there in chapter 8, uh, previous sermon, that, that uh, God had said, okay, you can eat any animal, but they had to wait till they repopulated enough to have enough to eat and still have animals surviving. So he began to be a man of the soil and plant food to eat. And we note that he also planted a vineyard. Which leads to my second thought and point is Noah's fall. Because one of the things when Noah stepped off the ark, I note, is that his heart was in the right place. And what did he do? If you remember the account, he built an altar. He put a sacrifice on that altar. And he worshiped God. And God was pleased with his worship, Noah's worship, and his family's worship, I'm assuming, with that as well. And so Noah had that fellowship. But something went wrong. Something changed, apparently, for Noah and his family that affected them greatly. And here's where I note some parallels to the first garden in what I call this second garden, that all that Noah had planted and what he was raising. And again, in Noah's fall, there's a fruit involved, just like in the first fall. We don't know what the first fruit, the fall, the fruit of the first fall was, but we know what caused Noah's fall, and that was the grape and the product of it, of the wine. And this whole thing it's a little hard to think about that's why I know I probably you did too just kind of skip over this because it it doesn't quite make sense to us in the way that we want to look at things and understand things of of what is going on here and, and what actually happened in this but it was serious enough that Shem and Japheth went to a big effort to put this garment on the back of their shoulders and walk backwards into the tent to cover Noah. It was very serious. And what this thing was, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it goes back to what God initially judged this world about, initially in in, in the flood, the intentions of the heart. In in, um, Genesis 8, verse 21 if you remember that after Noah did the, the sacrifice and worshiped God, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of his heart is evil from his youth. So 
after the flood and Noah's worshiping God, God says, never again will I judge the earth in this way as I have done. Even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That evilness was still resident in Noah's heart and his son's heart. Son's heart. The one difference from, from the first garden to the second garden in that. Adam brought sin to the world. Ad, uh, Noah and his sons were continuing to deal with the sin. Also, well, in that, we experience God's grace. He's not, he's not going to punish like he did before. But this also goes back to the reason that, that uh, God destroyed the earth. Because in, in chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God says that every intention of the thought of his, referring to man's heart, is only evil continually. You know, that's not any different than our world today. Because in our world today, we have continued to have the systemic problem of wickedness. Wickedness is in the heart of people who will not come under God's grace. And that leads me to my third point and thought of Noah's condemnation and his prophecy. And we read here in the text that, that when Noah had awakened, when he slept off um, the effects of the alcohol, and he was sober once again, and he learned what had happened while he was sleeping in his stupor, that, and interesting enough, these are the only recorded words in Scripture of Noah. We don't know what he said before the ark, as he was building the ark, how he invited people to salvation. We know nothing of that. Nothing's recorded. All that we have recorded in Scripture from Noah is these words right here that are hard to fully understand initially. But that's where I kind of got interested uh, in, in this uh, scripture text especially. Noah and his sons clearly understood the situation to be a family disaster. There wouldn't have been the reactions like there were and the pronouncement that, that, uh, Abraham, or that Noah did here um, in, in, his, in the way he, what he said there in, in that pronouncement. But they knew that this was a family disaster. What, what was it? That's always the question. And as I was studying this, I didn't come up with any answers. So I decided, well, I'll, I'll check with people that are more um, knowledgeable on scriptures than I am. And so I was checking commentaries. And I found that there were some of them that tried to squeeze Hebrew meaning, or meanings out of the Hebrew words that others didn't agree with. Uh, well, okay, these guys don't know what it means either, so we don't know. God intentionally, apparently, left some of these details out, and they're not important to what we need to know. We just know that it was a very um, difficult and family disaster in, the, in this situation by what was pronounced and then what happened in the generations that followed as well. Because some time 
Some time had gone by. His first pronouncement is not against Ham, but it's against Canaan, Ham's son. And you notice the scripture twice, and when I read this, verse 18 and then verse 22, twice it says, it, it, it points out to us that Ham is the father of Canaan. And when scripture does that in a couple of verses right after each other, we got to stop and take note. There's something they want us to know. And obviously, God wanted us to know that Ham was the father of Canaan. And then when Noah awakes and find out what had gone on and Ham's involvement, it also makes me kind of think that I wonder if Canaan was somehow involved in whatever this family disaster was. I don't know, can't prove that, but it made me think. Why, why would Noah find out what Ham had done and make this pronouncement against Canaan? Can't fully answer that. I'll be honest right now with you. So in the question and answer, we can talk about that some more, but, but that's, that's where I see it and from what I read in the commentaries, um, they don't know either on that because we don't have the details but yet some time why would I say Canaan was involved because some time had gone by here Noah planted a vineyard and it got mature enough that it could produce enough grapes to make wine plus give them something to eat as well second thing that I note is that uh, in the next chapter we read that that uh, Ham had four sons and Canaan was the youngest so if Canaan was around at all, it had to be approximately four years later, maybe, uh, from, from coming out of the ark. But because of just how this whole thing develops, my um, presupposition is that it was, uh, he was older to be involved in what was going on. But anyway, Noah makes this pronouncement against Canaan that he is cursed and he will be a servant of servants to his brothers. That's the way the ESV says it. Some other translations say the lowest slave. Canaan's life and all of his descendants were going to be the farthest away from God that they could be, and they would be servants to the other brothers. Wow. That seems pretty hard on Canaan. And it is. What did that do to Ham? I honestly don't know, except that Ham lived the rest of his life knowing that his son, Canaan, was going to have problem after problem and totally depart from God which did happen we'll talk about that in a little bit but the other pronouncements here that Noah made as well he made a prophecy on Shem bless a blessing to Shem and from Shem came Abraham and then the whole Jewish race, the nation of Israel, Moses, and then David, and from David, Jesus, our Redeemer. 
So Shem received the blessing that God's plan was going to flow from his descendants. And notice, let Canaan be his servant in verse 26. So again, the reminder, Canaan just isn't going to be with the family in that aspect. For Japheth, Noah's pronouncement was, under God's direction, I believe, in this, in this prophetic nature of what he's doing here, may God enlarge Japheth. That means that, that, that Japheth, Japheth would, would be, I guess in our terms today, we'd, say we'd be doing all right. Um, he wasn't going to be as good as, as Shem, but he would be doing all right in his descendants, that there would be a blessing on him. And notice the scripture says, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That doesn't mean they're going to all be living in the same tents, but that, that there's going to be a mutual benefit together. Well, actually, Japheth has the best, uh, is going to be receiving the blessings of Shem as well. Uh, in the journey there, there's going to most of the time there's going to be peace uh, between these brothers and and their descendants in that and so these were the pronouncements that Noah made against Ham but more directly against Canaan his son Ham's son and then on Shem a blessings on Shem and Japheth in that Ham's sin foreshadowed that of the Canaanites who were notorious for their debauchery and their immorality. Check it out. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when you read through those, you will read about their debauchery and their immorality of the Canaanites. Hence, God's judgment on them when the Israelites came to the land and moved into the land of of, of uh, what is now Israel. But the interesting thing that I noticed as I pondered this and studied this some more is that remember when they came to Israel and God said, have nothing to do with the Canaanites. Drive them out. Many of them were killed. And God says, do not be like the nations around you because in Deuteronomy it says, you are my chosen people. And it, it, the essence of what God wanted was Israel to be a light to the nations around them. That the people around them would come and say, we want to be like you. We want to worship your God. But instead, over and over, judges and then later on in the kings, uh, they was, wanted to be like the people around them. They wanted to worship their way. They wanted to live their lifestyle. They wanted to just be like them. And God says over and over, he sent them prophets, no, you are disobeying. Come back to me. Come back to what I offer you. But they kept refusing and, and, and turning away from God on that. Um, and hence, God's judgment on them. And I've just been reading through Jeremiah. That's my, my passage, my book recently to be reading through. And I'm reading, and I just said, wow, this is pretty cool. As I'm studying what the pronouncements were with Canaan, here I am reading in Jeremiah as he, under God's direction, is saying, people, don't do this. Don't be like your neighbors. Don't, don't, don't worship their way. Don't worship their gods. Don't, don't live like they live. And in the middle 
I'm, I read this verse, and I, I'm getting a little discouraged. But you know, I'm saying, wow, this is what Noah was talking about. What's going to happen with Canaan and, and his descendants who lived in that area? And now here were the people of Israel in that area, and, and, and their desire is to just be like the Canaanites. But Canaan was supposed to be a servant to them, not their mentors and, and, and showing the way that they should live. No, God had a better way. And here in, in, in um, and you'll see the verse up there, um, that God's promise to the disobedient and sinful people of Israel in Jeremiah 32 verses 39 and 40. And, and when I read this, I said, wow, here it is, the gospel, the good news. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Wow, a promise in the middle of the judgment of God for them desiring to be like their neighbors who, and living like their neighbors who were mostly Canaanites in that. But God says, I have a way, one heart and one way for you if you follow after me. We'll get more on that in a little bit. But the next, next thing we want to note is the wrap-up of Noah's life. <clears throat> it says that Noah was 950 years old when he died. That is the believe from what I could discover the, the third oldest person on record in the scripture and there's no question Noah was a remarkable man who served God in his own generation it says in the early part of the scriptures there the, the account of Noah that he walked with God and God favored him with the task of saving the human race from the judgment but his last years do not match the glory years of his totally walking with God. Noah was a man of great triumph and of weakness. His godliness is remembered in the New Testament, marking him as a man of faith in Hebrews 11.7 and as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 5. And I also note that he is one of the few men that God made a covenant with. And let's just take a quick look at that. Noah, Noah is, uh, I'm sorry, Adam is first. That God established the covenant with him. But Adam fell short and needed God's grace. Noah is next. But Noah fell short and needed God's grace. Next comes Abraham. That's coming up in a, in a little while that we'll be uh, studying that. But a covenant with Abraham that had the, 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 the words in there from God that, that this would be a covenant of blessing for not just Abraham's descendants, but for all nations. But Noah fell short and needed God's grace. Next was with Moses. And Moses fell short. And needed God's grace. He never got into the land God had promised them because of his disobedience on the way there. He got to see it across the river, 
but he never got to go into it. He fell short and needed God's grace. David, the next covenant. David, scripture says, was a man after God's own heart, but David fell short a number of times and needed God's grace until we come to the new covenant, the new covenant through Jesus Christ, the the God incarnate, God with us, the Son of God who didn't fall short and provided the one way, the only way, the new way for one heart to follow him to bring us salvation. In fact, I, I, there's a lot of verses that I could have picked out here, but one that came to me in Hebrews 9.15, because of what God has done through Jesus the, the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, the covenant that began with Abraham for the Jewish people and then Mo- with Moses that added how you worship God and all the things that God required of them. But that all fell short because their people couldn't couldn't live up to it in their own strength. Therefore, the new covenant, the new way, the new heart. Which leads me to my last focus and thought of God's grace. Soon after I began reading and studying this morning's text, a verse from the New Testament came to, to me, and that was the focus of the, of the children's uh, sermon as, as well this morning of Ephesians 5 18 God's grace God in his grace and, and thinking about this morning do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit the apostle Paul is making a contrast of the work of the spirit that of, and, and the effects of, of drunkenness and, and contrasting those Debauchery has uh, initially had a, a meaning having to do with to lead astray, but it became to be known as uh, consistently indulging in the pleasures of the senses. Like the Apostle John writes in, in 1 John 2.16 about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the uh, pride of possessions. These things that are intentions of our hearts without God. The, the, the systemic wickedness that's, that's within us. But John writes, that's of the world. It is not of God. We need to be of God. Thinking through, uh, 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 when I was thinking about this, maybe I should speak on drunkenness for a bit. Because it is condemned in the scriptures. It's a sin. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says that drunkards shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then I thought about my experience and my testimony. I've been told I'm weird, but I can live with that. You see, my parents never told me that I shouldn't drink or that I couldn't drink. And some time ago, I asked my mother, why she and my dad, it was after my dad had died actually, I, um, I said, why didn't you ever talk to me about alcohol and she said we didn't think we had to because you see when I was nine years old my dad was asked to volunteer at the Bowery Mission in New York City the Bowery Mission back in the 60s 
was Skid Row. And there was a mission that started there in 1870 to bring the gospel to these people living in this debauchery who needed Jesus like everything. My dad was asked to help with that. They would uh, organize or schedule churches from Lancaster County to go up Saturday nights or Sunday nights and have the service. Um, Men would come in off the street. Um, The gospel was preached, um, invitations given uh, to come forward. But also these men would take Lancaster County produce and products uh, up there that the mission really needed um, and was useful to them. And so as a nine-year-old and as a 10-year-old, I sometimes got got to go along up there to this fascinating city of New York. But we'd always go to one of the worst places in New York City at that point, Bowery Street. And one of the impressions that I still can even visualize today was sometimes we had to park a little bit away from the doors to the mission and summer or winter it didn't matter we had to step over or step around men who were lying on the street drunk and that impressed me immensely also a big impression in my life was hearing the testimonies of those who were saved by faith and to hear what God was doing in their lives, but also to hear of the loss that they encountered because this one drink led to the next and the next, and and over time, they lost their job, their house, their, their wife, their family, and I heard the sorrow and I heard the pain over and over again. It made an impression on me. At the age of 12, my parents decided that they're going to give an opportunity for men to get out of New York City. And they offered our barn garage type building that we had that wasn't too far from our house. And that it was converted into a, upstairs was a dorm. And downstairs was the big kitchen and a, a living area. And in the back was a chapel area. And, and so men who gave their lives to Christ went through the program in the Bowery Mission. And many times when they did that, well, they needed room for the new people coming in. And so many times the guys had nowhere to go except back out on the street, right in their old environments, which for most of them didn't work. And so my parents said, we got a place. We can take 15, maximum 20 people Uh, from New Bowery Mission uh, to be part of that. And so now all I had to do was walk a short distance from my house and be friends with these guys and and hear more of their stories and got to, uh, yeah, learn to know them very well. In fact, my dad got a van and we would take as many as one or two and usually it was pretty full to go to church Sunday mornings. They'd come to church with us and some of them became members at our church as well. When I got older, 14 or so, 15, I got the opportunity when I was up there, uh, the times that I would go up, to help when the altar call was given. The message would always have an altar call. If you wanted to receive Christ, you could come front and, and kneel at the altar. And then, like I did, we would go and kneel beside the person and talk to them about putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And something I... I still remember to this day as well. The first time that I did that, and I went down and I knelt 
beside the man who came forward and I began talking to him about faith in Jesus Christ and he turned to talk to me and the smell that I got, only by the grace of God did I keep it together um, there and, and, and keep going and, and be, to talk to him about faith in Jesus Christ because that smell in his breath was awful. Later I found out a large part of that smell was the alcohol, beer, at, at that point. Um, later as a pastor I got to preach and give the altar calls for men to come forward uh, as well when our church would go up there uh, a few times that I did that as well I'm saying all that because here's where the weird part comes so when I was a teenager my immediate group of friends didn't drink but because we loved muscle cars we would get together with a larger group of guys and they would drink. And I still remember when one of them put a beer in my hand and I smelt that beer and everything that I remembered from the Bowery Mission, from how the street smelled, how the smell was when I was beside that man leading him to Jesus, uh, there was no way that I could drink that beer. No wonder my parents never had to tell me about it. When I was 23 years old, I began working as a distribution center manager for a national company. And whenever we would get together for meetings, they had a policy of no alcohol at the meetings. But after the meetings, we were usually in a hotel and afterwards, the guys would go to the room and they'd have beer all over the place uh, there. And at first, I didn't go to be part of that. But I got convicted. I said, I can be with them at the meetings and we don't talk anything but business. I should, be able to, I should go to their, meeting, their time of friendliness in the, in the room and, and share the gospel with them. So I did that. And yes, they loaded me with questions. All kinds of questions. But the thing was, they would tell me, you're weird, but you're all right. And that told me something. Yeah, I'm different, but they're still willing to listen to me. And that was valuable to me. And, and, and they began to provide Pepsi or Coke for me to come and be there with them in their whatever room we were getting together in. Now, I've wondered, I've wondered, I can't answer it, but I've wondered if God put me on that particular path to protect my life from something that would have been a detriment to his kingdom and or my life. I can't give you the answer, but I can say only by his grace because it, it, it reminds me of Ephesians 2.8 for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not anything you have done. It is a gift of God. 
for each one of us who will receive it. And that's where we all begin. Apart from God's grace, Noah would not be remembered as a man of faith and a preacher of righteousness. Apart from God's grace, Eugene Byer would not be standing in front of you this morning preaching God's word. Every morning, I need to stand in front of the mirror and say and pray, God, The man I'm looking at cannot live a life pleasing to you on his own today. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit so that in his power, I can be the person you want me today. I still need to do that every day. That's what this verse is talking about. Don't let other things like like the children's sermon, those things, or or wine, or anything, drugs, anything, be in control of you, but let the Holy Spirit continually, that is the part of that verse, that God will continually fill us with his spirit. Apart from God's grace, you answer the question for yourself this morning. Apart, Apart from God's grace, I, and go from there. And let me say, if you have not experienced God's grace through his gift of salvation, listen for the voice of his Holy Spirit telling you that you need to receive his gift. Talk to me or one of the elders. Eternal ramifications are at stake. God makes his promises. God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your grace that meets us where we're at. Whether we're Noah or whether we're here today in this building or or involved online, listening online as well. God, your grace will always be there for us when we come to you. So God, my desire is take take these words this morning, God, and, and use them in our lives that we can be filled with your spirit day in and day out to be following you in obedience of of your life, God, of, of what you would want for our lives, God, to honor you and to bless you, God, because you've blessed us with so much. So thank you, Heavenly Father. Meet the needs that we have among us this morning by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, I'm praying. Amen.